about a thousand degrees outside today, but we are in here in the air conditioning. Good drinks, good company. That's right. Blue Podcast 5, Blue Podcast 5, Attorney Veronica Campos. How are you? Pretty good. How about yourself, Brian? Not too bad. Not too bad. <laughs> Better now that we are sitting down, relaxing, um, enjoying some of the finer things here. Absolutely. Not uh, sweating like, outside like crazy. <laughs> What was your weekend like so far? So far, so good. You know, the emails are kind of quiet right now, so I'm anticipating a hectic week, but for right now, we're okay. Please don't tell me you've been working all weekend. I have not, but don't tell anybody. Okay, well, <laughs> they won't know until this airs, like, Wednesday, that uh, you took some new time over the weekend. Uh, <laughs> did you do anything exciting? I did not. Well, I spent the day with my mom yesterday in Naperville, and that's the extent of it so she lives out in Naperville she doesn't but she likes to walk and there's this huge pool there I've never seen a pool that's so big it's like three blocks and it has like beach sand at the entrance so she wanted my daughter to see it so I could take her there but we don't have stuff like that in Oakland we have a <laughs> say we're Oakland are you listening Naperville's got you beat son you need to step so, your you need to step your game up that's right you need so, to step your game up we need some of them white sand pools over here on right. the south side especially with the property taxes we deserve <laughs> for sure white for sand sure. pools yeah I mean there, there are some parts of Oakland they're pretty high others are not too bad they're comparable to uh to the taxes around here by Midway Airport, which aren't too bad either. You know, we have a bigger tax base in Oakland, and we have a lot of commercial real estate out here that yeah. big companies have to pay all these giant property taxes for, and so that's why we're we're a little better off than you are. But uh, yeah, yeah, Naperville, Naperville, nice uh, lifestyle out there. I'll be out there this week. Uh, got some clients. We're gonna go for dinner after a closing. It's been a long time in the coming. Uh, they started under contract back in like March or something like that. And um, so they were waiting for this family to purchase a new construction home out in okay. Colorado. Right. So that was being built. And in the meanwhile, we've been waiting. So that's going to be uh, almost over. Uh, so you just spent the day by the pool and just got some sunshine or what? We just looked at the pool. We didn't get in. Uh, it was just an exploring uh, trip. My mom's trying to nudge me to move to Naperville, but my practice is set up in Evergreen Park, eight blocks from my house, so yeah. not looking to restart everything somewhere else. It would be a long commute, plus you said you bought a building over here, yes. you have the building where your office is? Right, so that's in Evergreen Park, and I live in Oak Lawn, like literally like on 100th Street, so eight blocks away, so my commute to the office is... <laughs> you, can't, you can't beat that. Can't beat it. You can't beat so, that. When did you get the building? Uh, 2018. Okay, so just recently. Just recently. I feel like we're doing like the the same types of things, you know, right? A little bit different time, but right. very, and, very close. And you were uh, you did updates to this one as well, so. Yeah. Did you do any to yours or no? It was moving ready, so I thought, but then I went in and I was gonna change the cabinets, and next thing you know, I remodeled the whole thing. So here we are. <laughs> yeah. Uh, same same here. We, you have a building. It's always something, you know. Um, I just had a crack in the windows. Um, so I put six thousand dollars on the front of the building. Oh. The fence was another four thousand or five thousand for the fence. So it's like that's right out of your pocket, and I'm not trying to make insurance claims for that. Right, you'll In be fact, paying for them for twenty years. Pretty much, yeah. And the rates, the premiums would be higher, and all that stuff, which I don't want. I'm trying to keep it as low as possible. Right, right. 
uh, it was funny because when we did the remodel work, there was uh, some old glass in the front, and they had to, it was above the actual windows, and they didn't know it was there until they pulled off the paneling because they were replacing right, right. the paneling on the front, giving it a little facelift. And so they take it off, and they see this glass, and like, well, we're going to have to crack it to get it out of there. So they have to break it to get it out. And I think all that hammering away put, like, a small crack in there. And then during the Arctic freeze we had yeah. over the winter, it went all the way. So, you know, you got to stimulate the local economy sometimes. The window man uh, <laughs> took pretty good care of me and uh, put some new ones on there. So it's yeah, all good. But, but it's always something. Right now we just had the blacktop redone on our parking lot and the parking lines. And, you know, it's. Just when you think it's time to breathe a little bit, something else comes up, but you know. You had the parking lines repainted back there? Yeah. Do you have like a Miss VIP one for your spot? Well, it doesn't say that yet, but you know, that's a good idea. Yeah, you wanna make sure you have one for you uh, <laughs> after at the end of the day, because sometimes when I come here, we have five spaces, six on a good day, um, if everybody parks really close to each other. but. Uh, between the tenants and uh, you know the staff right, the like I show up sometimes like, you know when do I get to be Mr. VIP where I don't have to walk around the block or whatever you know yeah. I mean for the most part I have a space uh, when I get here but you whatever, have to have one play. that says Brian Tierney ESQ like it has to be like jazzy ESQ, ESQ. ooh, ooh yeah. la la is that a French term <laughs> Esquire <laughs> so yeah. yeah I what I need to do never mind all that fancy Esquire stuff I need to get uh, one of the tow truck signs back there to warn people, yes. private parking, yes. don't play. Don't be playing behind my building. <laughs> now, I've been good to go, luckily, but sometimes people like to test. Yes. And the question is, you know what I mean? From here, from the south side, you don't want to be a rat. Nobody likes a rat. Right, right. But that's my parking back there. How long do I wait? If they put their car there, 24 hours, 48 hours for sure. <laughs> I mean, how long does the city wait, right? So you could give them a little bit more time just to show that you're, you know, generous and understanding, but I mean. That's a really good point. How long does the city wait? Not very long. You know, so. They have people out there just waiting for the minute. That's right. For the minute to pass, right. and then you're getting your ticket. There was a story, I can't remember which attorney was telling me this, but they said they had an elderly client who got a ticket, and she goes out there and she just kind of you know oh, excuse me ma'am uh, you know just touched her like this just that's assault she's like you can't touch me <gasps> blah 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 so poor granny smith had to go to court over touching one of the, the parking meters oh my goodness people. My. yeah on top of the ticket so i think the judge threw out the assault part of it just said uh, sorry about that ma'am you know what are you gonna do it goes to show how petty people are. You know, they say uh, America is one of the most litigious countries, and I don't know. I'm on the fence about whether I like that or not, because, but not for the fact that we're so litigious, you know, we don't get to do what we do. So, you know, God bless America. <laughs> yes, ma'am. The red, white, and blue. That's yeah, right. you're, you're free to get your ass in line That's and right. pay taxes till you die. Mm -hmm. um, yeah, no, uh, it's very litigious, but I feel like around here, litigation they didn't you know that would be a term they used in a spelling bee like they used to go out there and crack your ass you got wrong you know what i mean people would sort it out even the police officers you know what i mean they, they'd go out they'd make a call you know the guys get into it sometimes most of the time the police would get a better of it sometimes the other guys didn't just, 
All right. I guess we sorted that out. Got our system. Just got to be a little more careful or I whatever. I want to see you, know you know out I mean? here again. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I told you. For Christ's sake, next time we'll come back with more people. You know what I mean? That's right. You know? And it, it was... I feel like it's a rom- romanticized time. Like, there must have been a time period where it was, like, leave it to Beaver. Everybody knew each other, you know? Everybody knew each other's name, like, Cheers or whatever. Oh, that's Officer Joe or whatever, you right. know what I mean? Nowadays, it's, like, people from out of the state come in to, you know, smash the city, and the police officers are all stand- told to stand down, and the whole city's just destroyed. On you know? fire, right? Like- Pretty much. <laughs> Pretty much. I went, uh, I went to wisconsin last year for memorial day and when i came back i turned on the police scanner because we heard there was some stuff going on in our our neighborhood so my my wife sent me the the link or whatever on the app so i was listening to it and it sounded like armageddon out there like literally if the end of world was happening that's That's what what it it sounds like like. (laughs) that's what it sounded like it was like shots fired here cars crashed there looting here oh my god it was like if you, you know, if you looked out the window, you'd think you would see, like, the whole city burning down, like a Batman or Joker movie or something crazy. My like assistant that. and I were just talking about how it feels like The Purge, like a, like a bad, um, <laughs> The Purge uh, contribution to their series, and it's not funny, you know, because you're looking at it and you're like, what in the world? What society are we living in? Because people do what they want to do, say what they want to say, and, you know... Law enforcement's hands are tied. Courts are, the dockets are saturated, you know, and then COVID pushed everything back also. So you have a lot of people getting away with things because there's just not the manpower or the ability to hold them accountable. That's true. And uh, that was something I had uh, Attorney Felix Gonzalez on a few weeks back. And we talked about the delay in the court system for a while during COVID. There was no justice in Cook County and and, and at least in the civil courts. And... uh, you know, judges are seeing backlog like crazy. So now that things are opening up, you know, evictions are going to take longer, oh, foreclosures too. Lordy, Lord. I'm telling clients, cash for keys, cash for keys, because by the time you get it in court and get them out, cash for keys, you know. And, and the tenants, they know. They know some of them can pay, and they haven't paid just because of the moratorium. And where's the relief for these landlords, right? So. Yeah, it's, it's true. I've gotten calls from people, and they say, you know, uh, I know they're they're still working because I've seen them going into work and everything. And they said, oh, well, you know, there's a moratorium on it. Right. I don't have to pay. So I think COVID really, really kind of exposed the uh, failure of communication, I feel, in, you know, all sorts of government, the federal government, the local government here. It's like, yeah, there's a moratorium, but just so you know, you still own that money. So you might want to make every effort to, like, make partial payments you know, start saving some money so when the time comes and you do have to pay them back, like, we understand you want to have some cash on hand for now, keep your stuff free for food and, you know, car payments and all this and, you know, whatever you got going. But also, you still own the money um, because, you know, one thing that definitely has to be examined in in Chicago is the landlord-tenant ordinance, you know? They really have to take a look at that because it's been like that since the 80s, I think. It's ridiculous. And it's basically like they own the building and not you, the tenants. And the tenants, they know all the rules. So, you know, I'm not sure if you remember, I uh, I worked at the Fair Housing Legal Clinic at John Marshall. I did my internship there. And uh, a lot of the potential clients that would call claiming discrimination, they knew all of the rights, all of their rights under their landlord-tenant ordinance. 
not what their obligations were. Like forget paying rent, right? They, they're schooled on what their rights are. And for the landlords, even if you get a judgment for past due rent, what happens? Then the landlord then has to go and continue trying to collect it. And if they don't make a certain amount of money, if you don't have their information, I mean, it's throwing good money after bad. So the landlords end up holding the bag while they still had a mortgage. So they were going to work to pay their house mortgage, their investment property mortgage. And, you know, they don't care. It's very landlord, you know, landlord friendly here in Chicago. And it's sad because the landlords really do end up holding the bag. I mean, they work really hard. We, you, I mean, you just bought this property, you know. Uh, during COVID, my tenant, she said, uh, we have a moratorium. I said, but you're commercial. It doesn't apply to you. And she just stopped paying me. She just stopped paying me. And when she left, they made sure they moved everything with the least amount of care possible. They scratched all my floor that I had just installed. No care. Because they knew most likely than not I wouldn't take, you know, go sue them for damages at that point i just wanted them out how many tenants do you have in that building um, i have an attorney that's been there since 1999 uh, i rent the garage and then i have a new tenant now that has a non-emergency transportation business a former real estate client actually we did a no residential it's just commercial no. the second floor which was the apartment we converted into an open floor plan office and that's where i have my office okay so, so you're overseeing everything from the top yeah, yeah. So, you know, it works out when they pay. When they pay. And when they don't destroy your property. Yeah, I mean, we got a kind of a long road ahead of us here uh, when the moratorium is lifted on the evictions. And, uh, you know, we're going to see how it all turns out. It's not good for the people either. You know, it was a rent, like a non-payment holiday for a while. But, you know, at the end of the day, they're going to need somewhere else to live and, you know, some some people are uncollectible you know they're very hard to get money from but if you if you get enough information on them up front you know there's ways to you know attach their bank accounts or their you know garnish their wages or something it's not easy to do but it still costs the landlord time and money and you know the landlords some of them they have multiple properties this is you know their business but some of them you know they have one building they don't want to deal with it anymore they're like you know i'm putting more time in i'm paying attorney's fees and it's not worth it to them which is you know it's unfortunate because even myself if i some of the tenants they, they look like they're going to be good tenants at the beginning you could do the credit check all of that they move in with a girlfriend then one of the two moves out and now you have a tenant that can't pay that rent on their own and then the tenants will flip on you i've had evictions where all of a sudden the, the tenant is upset they're being evicted for not paying like somehow the landlord owes them free housing, you know? And, you know, I, I, I just don't understand that it's, it's beyond me, but it's, and then Chicago, the security deposit issue. Yeah. How many of our landlords don't put the security deposit in an interest bearing account? The minute they file for eviction, what happens? The tenant countersues and now what? So now they're in a worse position you know than when they started so yeah there's a lot of things to that landlords have to keep in mind you want to get the apartment get your stream of income you know have that stream of income maybe retire on the building or buildings that you have and you violate these rules and then you're treated like a criminal it's like yes. i'm just trying to 
provide housing, make some money, leave something for my family or whatever. Yeah, it's tough. They, they really do need to evaluate that. And I am going to uh, be speaking with a lot of different people about, you know, what I mean, I, I can think of a few things right off the top of my head that need to change or at least need work. But uh, what, what other ideas are out there to really revamp that? And they, they really should, too. Um, I feel that they were strict with the moratoriums here in Illinois and certainly in Chicago. Just because they didn't want more civil unrest, too, right? You get all these people right. being thrown out or whatever. You know, obviously, the COVID was a concern, too, because Felix Gonzalez, when he was on, was talking about, like, you know, movers coming in and out and possibly spreading COVID or taking it out with them and bringing it back home. And I understand that. But uh, interesting times, you know. For sure. I mean, but, but again, like I said, now the landlords are left holding the bag, you know. I mean, some of these landlords put together all of the money they had, their savings, you know, to invest in these properties. They were counting on this rental income to pay the property. And if their jobs were, their source of income was also affected by COVID, now they're in, in trouble twice. Trouble. Yeah. You know, their own house plus this rental, you know, that they probably just got into. So, I mean, there, there needs to be better protection for landlords, but I don't think there's enough advocacy. For landlords? For landlords. Which I don't get because, and you know what, scoot in a little bit more, bring it in closer, a little bit closer to the microphone. Perfect. Um, so, yeah, I don't get that either because you would think that landlords are like very powerful people um you know what i mean or that there's some big ones out there that would really be like all over the city government you know with leverage that they could make a change and i don't feel like we see that really or hear about it at all you know and the small time landlords the problem is there's a lot of legal aid clinics and um that help the tenants because you know poor tenant right like he's being discriminated at against you know the landlord didn't do what he was supposed to do with the deposit so they're the victim but the landlord who's the property owner well they're in a better place they they own property right they're not the victim they own property and you don't have the legal aid clinics jumping to give their free legal services to the landlords, landlords. and now the landlord has a non-paying tenant and now you want him to pay money for an attorney to advance his position it's cash for keys is always the easiest way so when you're doing it that way because you don't want the headache what happens it falls through the cracks the problem isn't highlighted and the tenants continue doing what they're going to do the only ones that i find there's some type of balance is when you have the section eight tenants because they know that if there's an eviction on their record that they can lose their assistance right so there's a little bit of you know working with them because there's a, there's something at stake for them too but otherwise i mean the tenants play the game of catch me if you can that was a good movie so, by the way it was wasn't it very good movie so my parents owned a building on 55th and pulaski years ago and the tenant stopped paying the rent and he was starting to bully my father my dad's like five eight this guy was like six foot two um and then started giving him money orders that were made payable to the clerk of the circuit court. And at the time I had an online business and my dad said, well, can you deposit it in your business account? And I said, wait, but this is made payable to the clerk. What, what is going on here? I said, I'm not depositing it. So I started sending emails to the newspaper, to whoever I could, because 
you know, why is this tenant trying to pay my dad with money orders made payable to the clerk of the circuit court? Unless he was the circuit court clerk, Unless that would be a different story. So my ex-husband, his email back then was divineculture at yahoo.com. And we had Dick Divine, who was our state's attorney. What a lovely name that guy had. Right? So I sent the emails from his email, Divine Culture. So because of the email, somebody's like, wait. And they took the time to read it. Turns out this guy worked for um, the department uh, asset seizure. And he was telling people, if you give me X amount of money, I can expedite returning your property. So people were bringing him money orders to expedite getting their cars, their you know property that was seized. They were seized. bringing who? People who got you know pulled over. They have you know uh, drugs in their car. Their cars get taken. They would bring forfeit and seizure. They would come in and pay him because he was telling them, if you send me, if you bring me this money, I can help expedite getting your property back. Dick Devine or somebody else? No, the tenant. The tenant. The tenant, because he worked for, yeah. So, so he was able to, he worked for so a politician? They worked at the Department of Forfeit and Seizure. So he would be getting pe- like checks made over to the uh, clerk of the circuit and court. finding ways to cash them. And then these people thought that they were going to expedite getting their property returned. And he was managing to do that, but he was bullying my dad. So when I saw that money order, I'm like, something's not right here. I, I was working as a secretary for attorneys back then. So I'm like, the city has their own accounts. You know, you don't these money orders why would this guy be able to cash it so the way this tenant actually got evicted was because they researched it and the wife was in some kind of witness protection program Uh, she worked for the secretary of state they had to investigate and revamp their hiring practices um, because there was this massive fraud going on by these people so the way they got evicted was they came in the police came and surrounded the apartment and took them and this whole fraud was exposed so (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> I was like, because you were sending emails to try to get anybody who could help? Like, yeah, because I'm like, I don't know what's going on here, but something's fishy. I didn't know that it was this kind of fraud, but I'm like, there is no reason why a civilian should have these cashier checks uh, or money orders made payable to the clerk of the court and depositing somewhere. I'm like, something's not right there. So what was he doing? Endorsing the back pay to the order of your dad and then it had clerk, uh, clerk of the circuit court on yep. the front and then he would t- try to endorse it over? Yes. Because he had authority to do it because he worked there? I don't think he had authority. Or I think he was just committing fraud. Yeah, that's really know? serious. And That's it, very serious. Had I put them in my bank account, I mean, the bank, just my business account, they never, I could deposit whatever I wanted. So they would have not said anything. But in this case, I'm like, wait a second. Why is he paying you rent with the money order made payable to the clerk of the circuit court? That doesn't make sense. So that's actually what uh, made me apply to law school one more time. Because I had already applied five times and not gotten in because of my LSAT. Well, you know what they say. Six times is a trial. That's what they say. (laughs) And it was. (laughs) It was. But I was like, you know, I was so angry that this tenant, I'm like, how is this? My dad was going to work his regular job, and then, you know, trying to make the money to pay the mortgage on that building, and the tenant was bullying my dad. My dad would come home like white, you know, because he was intimidated by this tenant. So we made it right, you know, so. Karma's a biatch. It is, so. Yeah, and because then what happens? You're taking checks that are made payable to the circuit court, or the clerk of the circuit court, 
and then you're part of it too right. when it goes down right. like no i'm actually like i'm not taking your checks made out to somebody else right you know in order to pay your rent you know what yeah. i mean you and need to figure out something else for that, but I'm not taking those, and uh, you're going down. You know what I mean? And my dad didn't think anything of it. He's like, you know, I, I can't put in my personal account. Can you put in your business account? And I'm looking at it. I'm like, this this doesn't, something's not right. But the only reason I believe that anybody paid attention to my, you know, whistleblowing uh, emails were because the email address I used had divine culture, and they associated it like they thought maybe it was something about Dick Divine or something um, because I don't think otherwise anybody would have paid attention yeah so I was like okay well that worked out you know so you know one time that the landlord got got the uh, high end of the Victory yeah yeah the yeah one guy. for the landlord right yeah team landlord so, got one but after that my dad said no more and he sold his building <laughs> he's like Chicago rule laws no uh-uh so was that his one and only it was yeah it was so and how about you? Same thing with the office building? Or are you trying to make I, streams of income with rentals? Or? I caught the real estate bug, Brian. You can't do what we do and not catch the real estate bug. So I'm not sure if uh, I'm looking into rental in the sense of like a multi-unit or Airbnb investment or, you know. But you can't do what we do and not catch the real estate bug. Yeah, I'm... I like to diversify my stuff, you know what I mean? Yeah. So for me, it's not just going to be real estate, but real right. estate will be one of those right, things because right. I love being a real estate attorney, but I don't want to do it till That's I'm dead. That's right. That's right. So, so you said that uh, it was that situation with the phony checks that made you apply to law school? So I've wanted to be an attorney since I was eight, but I don't test well. So the LSAT, the thorn in my side, I took the LSAT course twice, took the exam several times, and you know, John Marshall has you write an addendum for your score, an addendum for this, and every time I applied, I'd write my addendum, you know, basically apologizing, you know, mea culpa, you know, my score, mea culpa, this. And the last time I'm like, listen, at that time I had an online eBay business and I was a power seller. I'm like, it could go either way at this point, I'm, I'm good. And I didn't submit any addendums. My score would fluctuate three or four points up and down. I mean, I'm like, this is all you're gonna get. But this is not, uh, this doesn't show you whether I'm gonna be a good attorney. It's a, you know? So I applied that last time without any addendums and lo and behold, they accepted me. I'm like, seriously? Like, you've gotta be kidding me. But, but I had already thought like, oh, maybe it wasn't meant to be. And then that whole incident happened and I was just like, no, 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 I'm like, this is this is my calling this is what i want to do i want to stick it to the you know the bully i want to stand up for the little guy so i do it uh, in divorce law <laughs> now and real estate is my balance so that i can deal with family law <laughs> your balance your balance because real estate law is like a mini marriage and divorce yes. for like two months straight well, or a month straight or a month and a half straight or however long it takes. I'm seeing that now, but my mom said, you should do real estate. The attorney that we use for our real estate closings, mind you, her last closing was in 2001. She just shows up at the closing and collects her $300 check back then, right? I tell my mom, I have yet to have a transaction where my only job is to show up at the closing and collect my check. I have yet. 
<laughs> it's the hardest $550 or $500 you will ever earn in your Especially life. when you're on the buy side, you're like, you've got to be kidding me. Like, my hourly rate is like $10 an hour on this transaction, you know? Well, luckily, not all of them are that bad. Right, like, right. One out of ten. Yeah, yeah. Two out of ten. Three out of ten. <laughs> and then there's maybe six easy ones or five <laughs> easy ones sprinkled in there or something like that. Uh, but, yes, it's each job that you do within being a real estate attorney is basically almost its own full-time job so communicating checking emails you could have one person (laughs) that literally all they would do is check emails all day long and they would have enough job to do like an eight-hour job and then probably stay up all night working as well then the deadlines and addendums and the negotiating and communicating is the biggest one communicating is the biggest one that in itself of itself is a full-time job um, Has it ever happened to you that you're like, okay, today I'm going to, you know, work on my sale files, going to make sure that this, this, and that is done. But let me check my email first. And next thing you know, it's 5 o'clock, and all you have been doing is responding to emails. <laughs> kind <laughs> of. I mean, we what we try to do in my office is I meet with my assistant, Stephanie, twice a week. And this is the ideal week. This is not what happens all the time, especially during the summer. But I meet with my assistant Stephanie twice a week to go over buyer fi- buyer files because we have like five times as many buyers as mm-hmm. we do sellers, which is not surprising because there's about ten buyers for every one listing right. nationwide right now. So uh, we go over those meetings. We block that time off. You know, if there's a closing that needs to happen during those meetings, like we'll get a coverage attorney or whatever, um, and we'll try to work on that. But also, you know, I try to tell people, hey, I'm in a meeting. I'll call you back when it's over. Right. Right. But then I have, if I have my email open, which I usually do because something will come up in a meeting, I might want to shoot out a quick email. Mm-hmm. I'm seeing everything that's coming in. So that's kind of right. a distraction as well. So a lot of it is managing distractions, managing information flow and communication yes. flow. But it's it's very, very hard to stay, to keep time blocked off for the actual purpose for which you blocked it off in this, in right. this business. So, um, so you wanted to do real estate law when you got into uh, law school no I thought I was going to be a criminal law attorney so when you were eight you saw like Perry Mason or something that's what I saw seriously Perry Mason or no not Perry Mason but I thought you know that was going to be me and as I got older you know the whole like law and order soundtrack was going to be playing and the you know and then um but by the time I got into law school, I was married and my daughter was about a year and a half. So then my vision changed. By then I also had had a, a, my own business, so I no longer wanted to work for somebody else. I wanted to be able to be there for my daughter. So then all of a sudden my vision of how I would you know, practice law, I started out doing well, anything that came in through the door, right? One client would come in. I'm like, okay, that's the light bill. I'd get another client. I'm like, all right, that's part of the rent. And But I was doing immigration and family law. And I wanted to get into real estate, but, you know, it's not until the realtors start getting to know you that you start getting the business. Um, my parents, uh, they naturalized here in the 80s. They were immigrants, undocumented immigrants here. So immigration was hard for me because I felt the weight of my client's world on my shoulders. Every time there was a consular interview, I'm like, oh my God, what if they can't come back to their families? 
and I just couldn't do it. It was too close to home. And I, you mean that because sometimes the consular interviews were either in the United States or not in, in yeah, in Mexico right. or another country, right. wherever they were coming from. Right. Because, uh, you know, um, I dealt with predominantly immigration issues for Mexican clients, right? Um, and then the administration changed and there was not as many avenues for, you know, immigration relief and adjustment of status. And I, I just... And a lot, around that time, I had a couple of realtors that just started sending me all of their work. And I was like, all right, we're, we're just going to scratch immigration because, you know, you can't, you can't be jack of all trades, you know. So. You can try, but it's you not easy. Try. I mean, like, you think about different fields, you know, the medical field, like, you got a heart problem, you go to the heart doctor, right? right? You go to cardiologist. Correct. You got a lung problem, you go to lung doctor, pulmonologist. Mm -hmm. It's the same thing with attorneys. Like, oh, can't you do this? Like, no, I, I can. I kind of, this is the thing I do. This is my niche. And, and that's it. And that's that. My mom gives my card to everybody. And I said, no, you got to tell them that I do family law and real estate. And she's like, but can't you just meet with them and listen to the problem? I said, no, it's a waste of their time and a waste of my time. <laughs> you know, have them call me and I will give them a referral to someone that has. Exactly. And she doesn't understand that. And I'm like, I cannot sit down and just take intakes and consultations of areas that are not any advice I would give them is not going to be the best advice because it's not my area, right? So, you know, she's, we're working on her understanding that, but, you know. It's not easy, and I, I still, from time to time, help with matters because sometimes things have to be litigated. Uh, I have some clients who, they had a, a building that was, like, owned by their father and a family friend. And the relationship went really sour, and they don't want to be stuck owning that home anymore. And a lot of people don't know, hey, in America, do you think that you're going to be stuck in a property forever that with somebody on title uh, as well as you on title that you don't like or that you don't want to mm -hmm. be in an ownership with them anymore? You can do a lawsuit called a partition, partition. lawsuit right. where you basically force the sale um, of the property through court. So I said, look, I'm here to help you with the real estate part of it. I got you all day long and twice on Sunday. It's all good on the Lord's Day. You know what That's I mean? Right. We'll help you out too because I'm doing the Lord's work, uh, <laughs> I guess. Kind of. I, it, sometimes this job is so busy, I feel like it's devil worship. But uh, <laughs> you, you know what I mean? But um, in any event, I referred them over to another attorney who's like litigation attorney, does a lot of stuff like that, who I know is just like a savage fighter. So I'm like, this is who you need. Um, them and all their resources and all their staff yes. to help you out with this. And then let's talk. Let's talk real estate. So <laughs> once you get the money from your partition, <laughs> I can help you buy something, you know. But um, speaking of partitions, because I've handled partitions. So well, they're gonna they're gonna sell, they're gonna sell to whoever. Right. So I'll help you in the the closing part of it. Right, right. I'm your guy. Yes, ma'am. Um, partitions, and to anybody that's listening, boyfriend and girlfriend. I know that sometimes you're very much in love and you want to buy a property together. Joint venture agreement, please. Because then when it doesn't work out, you can't come to us as attorneys and say, I want to sever this business agreement. It's not a business agreement. You're co-owners of a property. And if you're joint tenants, you're equal joint owners of property. And then you have to pay to have a partition. So I see it all the time. and. You know, they say, well, I want to sever the business relationship. Well, there's no business here. You guys were in love, <laughs> you know, and I get it. It's 
tough because you don't want to make your partner feel like you don't trust them. But coming from a divorce attorney, I'll tell you, you know, the strongest relationships and marriages, you know, you have to put everything on the table, you know, and that's one big one because it gets really, really sticky because at that point the relationship has broken down. So it's like you're going through a divorce. It's not just a property issue. It's like going through a divorce. Without the actual marriage. Without the marriage. Which is probably a little bit better (laughs) than having the actual marriage. Mm -hmm. Because I feel like that's probably going to get even a lot worse. No, because the marriage is clear cut, right? In Illinois, the equitable distribution of marital assets. It's not so clear cut when two people that weren't married buy a property because, oh, well, I put $20,000 into remodeling. I put the down payment. And now we have to do, you know, figure out. Keep your receipts. You know? Keep your receipts. So, but yeah, so please, please, joint venture agreement. Otherwise, Brian and I can refer you to attorneys that can take care of you. <laughs> well, hopefully um, people will listen to your advice and get some joint venture agreements because you might be in love at one time, but things yes. change and then you're no longer in love. That happens. People fall in love and out of love, and there is nothing wrong with that. <laughs> It happens. It's life. Because when you're living in a little house on the prairie back in the homestead in the 1800s, it was to death do us part. And those are the only other people you've probably seen for 50 miles in every direction or 100 miles. But it's different now. Well, till death do us part means something completely different in the times we live in now. So yeah, one of us is going to go feet first. That's on a meme or that's like somebody's tattoo. Till death do us part. Yes, yes. But for real, not for real. So I tell people also, you know, marry someone that you can divorce, right? You know, because if you marry someone who, you know, it's okay that, you know, he only works part time and switches jobs every three weeks. I love him. Well, if you have a stable job, you might be paying this slug maintenance, you know, because, you know, you love him. (laughs) So you have to look at what it would look like if you need to part ways with this person. So... Luckily, I've never had that problem of a girlfriend <laughs> or a wife who uh, is, you know, getting a new job every few weeks or having no job for weeks and weeks and weeks. Um, so you mentioned divorce, uh, divorce and family law. Um, you pra- that's one of the things you practice. Right. You're probably pumping the brakes on that a little bit, but you can tell folks. So we're here in Illinois. And in Illinois, it's a community property state? Correct. Okay. And community property state means that if you owned it, you know, while you're married. Yes. Even maybe if the other spouse is not on title or whatever, it could still be considered joint property. It is considered joint property. Unless there's an exception. You purchased it with non-marital money didn't put the other person on title, you made sure to keep that line of separate assets. The minute you commingle it, it becomes part of the the marital estate. So, and I have a lot of clients that are like, but, but that's my house. He's not on the deed or she's not on the deed. I'm like, well, <laughs> that's not gonna change anything. It's marital property, so. Yeah, because there's marital property and non-marital property so marital property is something that you've you either own jointly or that you've both contributed to and therefore it's considered 
jointly owned as part of the marriage and it has to be divided up uh, or the income from which has to be divided up during a divorce. So the theory is this, the marriage is a partnership. So even if one person didn't contribute monetary contribution, they may have contributed by taking care of the house, taking care of the kids. Sweat equity. Exactly. So the law says, you know, this was achieved because both of you contributed in one way or the other to this marriage, right? Same thing with pensions. And can't say, oh, it was my job, my pension, right? But what you were taking and contributing to the pension wasn't going to your to your family. So that sacrifice they were also making to invest in this asset. So it's marital asset. Ooh, I feel like there's some distance between those things. There is. But Illinois law allows that. So you say with a family sacrifice, um, you know, retirement benefits or other income like that could be also online. Yes. Yeah. We had uh, one case. It had been going on for three years. I got in on the case, and they were hounding my client to prove where he put $800,000 of a pension he withdrew. That's a lot of money. It is. And I get in on the case, and I'm just kind of, like, passing along the documents that my client is getting because the judge said, you got to turn these documents in and so forth. Then I sit there and look at my intake, and I realize that my client stopped working prior to getting married, which means that pension was a non-marital asset. So for three years, the other attorney had been hounding him because his his client, the wife, wanted her 50% of this $800,000 pension. And I told the attorney, I said, listen, this is non-marital. Like, he earned this pension prior to even marrying her. And he was so incensed, he said, this is the first time hearing of this. And I'm like, well, didn't you do your due diligence and look at the date of the marriage and the, you know, when he started contributing to the pension? He's like, well, you still have to prove it. I said, well, counsel, my client worky-worky, my client contributes to pension. My client no worky-worky, my client no contributes to pension. You have the tax returns. So we settled the case for like a nominal amount just to kind of like, you know, here. Make it go away. Make it go away. Um, but it was one of those where it was like, wait a second here. So my client had been defending this for like three years and, you know, and it was just something so simple because the attorney failed to like check whether it was a marital asset or not. So here it was clear cut. He stopped earning pension prior to the marriage. We had some exposure because he put the money into a bank account and for some odd reason then subsequently added the wife for ease of paying some bills. The minute he added the wife, it gets tricky. Now there was less money left in the account by that point, but these are things people need to know. If it's non-marital, you gotta keep it non-marital the whole way. You can't take something that's non-marital and put it in a joint checking account because the minute you do, you gifted it to the marriage. It's no longer non-marital. You know, and it, it's small, it's minor, you don't think about it when it happens, but when you're getting divorced, this guy, in theory could have been out $400,000, which he no longer had by having added this woman to the bank account. <laughs> so, <laughs> All right, ladies and fellows out there, when it comes to making things easier for yes. paying bills, some things you have to yes. take care of yourself yes. and you need to get good at that. You don't have to be the best record keeper, but at least make sure <laughs> that you're the one paying the bills. Uh, because it's too late once you've added somebody to your account yes. because now they're a joint account holder with basically the same rights as you. When you're talking about non-marital property, right? Because obviously anything else, if it's 
you know, income, it's of the marriage. But if your intention is to keep that separate, it has to be separate. And, you know, people's feelings are going to get hurt, but I mean, this is the reality, right? This is why people need to look at their situations and, you know, but people, people get married because they're in love, you know, they're not always reasonable, especially when they're younger. They're like, oh, you know, oh, <laughs> so. <laughs> when you're younger, it's even crazier because I feel like at least as you get older, you are able to control your emotions better or yeah. at least not let the emotions do the thinking for you right. as much. You just are, you're able to pump the brakes more as you get older and take a step back and say, hmm, why am I really right. doing this? Or, you know, what is the end goal here? Right. Well, my biggest biggest pitch to my clients when I was starting out was I I've been divorced twice and I did my own divorces prior to um, having uh, my. So you're battle tested. I'm battle tested. I said I'm not the only the hair club president. I'm also the a client, member. Right? Yes. That's right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But I tell them I said that when they wanted to know about my outcome, outcomes and I said, well, I'm, I'm a housekeeper. You know, every time I get divorced, I keep the house. So <laughs> the clients are like sold. I'm <laughs> like, all right. <laughs> so. I've gone through the ringer just to make sure that I can give them firsthand, you know, um, experience in, in my representation. You know, whatever that means, I don't know. But <laughs> Well, hopefully you don't have to um, build your resume by experience further Definitely, because I'm yeah. sure the first two times were tough enough. No, they were okay because, you know, I told them, I said, we could do it the good way, you know, the easy way, or we could do it my way, you know, but <laughs> we're going to take care of this. So... <laughs> If you had to define um, marital property versus non-marital property for people, what would you tell them? So, marital property is anything acquired during the marriage. Things that can be considered non-marital property is anything you own prior to the marriage that you didn't commingle with the marital estate. If you received an inheritance, that's not always marital property unless you then go and put it into a joint account, okay? Anything else, it's marital. If you win the lottery, it's marital. If you get a bonus, it's marital. You know, everything is marital during the marriage because you're a partnership, you're a unit. So the law doesn't say, oh, well, you know, she only contributes minimum wage or he only, the law says you guys are a unit. And this goes to the marital estate. So, you know, prenup everybody. You can assist with that? I can. Okay. You know, the thing is that sometimes people start out and neither party has anything. And they're in love. So they don't see the point in a prenup. Fast forward, right? You know, I, I have a personal friend of mine, you know, his income has doubled in the last five years. Wife refuses to get a job. Wife refuses to finish her degree. And the law says that maintenance will be calculated based on the party's situation at the time of filing. So even though at one point she was employed, at one point she was in the military, she's not now. And though at one point he only made $89,000 a year, now he makes $250,000 a year. So now is a good it time. It sounds like he's going to have to pay some maintenance. It sounds like he's going to pay maintenance. Oh, and in Illinois, maintenance since 2015 um, changed. It's a calculation like child support is now. Where before the judge had discretion, you could say, hey, you know, three or four years. Now there's a formula. X amount of years, X amount of maintenance. Once you hit like 25 years, forget it. It's for the rest of the person's life. So we had one client. She'd been separated from her ex-husband for nine years. 
but they were still married. They were still married. He didn't want to pay for the divorce. She came to me. I said, oh, that's okay. We'll file the petition for fees, you know, contribution, yada, yada. We got our attorney's fees. And the maintenance calculation for her, because at that point, the marriage had run 27 years, was for life. Because they were still married. It doesn't matter if they were living separate. They were still married. So he had to pay maintenance for those extra nine years because he thought, well, I don't live with her. We're separated and not legally separated, just separated. And well, he learned the hard way that, you know, you're still married. Does it make any difference whether you're separated but living living together or separated but living separately? Um, yes and no is the answer. So under the law, when you say people, uh, it, there's a requirement to be living separate for six months in Illinois. That doesn't mean you have to live in separate, under a separate roof. As part of a divorce? Right. You have to be separate for six months. All that means is that six months, one or both of you have stopped being part of the marriage. Example, no more sex. Right? You're cut off. You're cut off. But in these cases, this one in particular, they had been living in two separate households already for nine years, but they were still married. My client retired. He didn't retire. He was still working for the rail, railroad, mind you. Calculation was based on their current situation. Cha-ching. You know, it's not like if she got, you know, a windfall. Right. But, but still, she was know, getting some of the benefits for if, the time. If he wanted to end that marriage and end that obligation, he needed to act. You, you know, people can't just sit on things. They have to be proactive, and some people are learning the hard way, especially since the maintenance laws changed in 2015. They're learning the hard way that just because you haven't seen your wife for 15 years doesn't necessarily change the fact that you're still married. So we see things like that. So, Do you um, handle child custody cases? We do. We do. Um, we represent a lot of fathers. I'm a very strong father's rights advocate when it comes to parenting time. I see a lot of moms who think that once they split from the dad and have a new boyfriend, they can replace the children's dad. And you have fathers that are going broke, paying attorneys, doing everything they have to do, everything they can, going over and above because they just want to be a part of their kids' lives. Um, and a lot of dads get a bad rap for being deadbeats, and, but you have a lot of fathers that come into my office and they're in tears. They just want to be able to see their kids. And um, so we represent a lot of fathers in that res respect. So, What are the different types of custody you can have? You can have sole custody from one spouse. You can have joint custody with both spouses. You can have only like limited visitation. What, what do we have for so, people? Before it was called custody. Now it's called, and I personally think it had to do a lot with the father rights, father's rights movement. Uh, now it's called allocation of parental responsibilities. And it's divided in four areas. Medical, education, extracurricular, and uh, religion. And each area, either both parties can make the decisions or one party. So in effect, if one person has all the decision-making authority, it's tantamount to what used to be called sole custody. But we don't call it that anymore, right? So 
Um, and then we have the parenting time issue. So more and more we're seeing more parenting time for the dads. At least that's what we always fight for. Not 50-50 because sometimes it's not practical. You know, you can't really split the time 50-50 when you have kids in activities, young kids. I mean, you have to give them consistency. It's, it's not as easy when parents have different schedules, but that's a theory. So um, it comes down to the allocation of decision-making, the custody issue. Now the parenting time, anything after 156 overnights, it affects child support calculations. So there's no straight custody, joint custody, unless the judge completely says, listen, mom has all the rights or dad has all the rights, you have to check with mom or dad for visitation. Oh, we don't call it visitation, now. it's called parenting time as well. Um, I feel like they've maybe nerfed up the, uh, like they've, they're putting kids gloves on now when they use these terms. It's like more, uh, I don't know, what do they call that right now? Everything that's going on, like the social sensitivity and all that? Well, yes and no, but think about it from a father's perspective. You're with a person, you have children with them. Now you split from them. Now you get visitation rights. Visitation, these are your children. What do you mean visitation? Well, you get to visit your children? These are your children. So by calling it parenting time and allocation, I think- Visitation sounds more like a prison term versus parenting yeah, time like might sound- It sounds more limited and restricted. Like you're the outsider, right? You're the outsider now. You get to come check out your kids as allotted by the court or agreement by the parties. So when you have a case that starts, if the relationship already broke down and you're throwing around terms like visitation, it adds to the animosity. So if you have these softer terms, then in my opinion, now that you're talking about parenting time for both of the parties instead of dad's visitation time, right? And it used to be like every other weekend, one day during the week, but you see more and more dads stepping up and saying, oh, well, I want a couple days during the week. I'll take the kid to school. I'll move. I'll do this. But I, I think for a long time, it was more one-sided towards the moms. And you know that whether you pay child support or not, that doesn't affect your parenting time with your child. Like, you could be financially a deadbeat but still be a good dad in every other regard. You yeah, know? every single uh, t-ball game exactly. and soccer Taking game. Exactly, taking the kids, doing everything else. The recital. Right, right. so moms can't withhold time, but... Um, you see it all the time. The mom has a new boyfriend, especially if the kids are younger. And I hate to say this, but I've seen it so many times. And now they don't want the dad around because the new guy is great with the kids and they want this little new family. But the dad is always going to be the dad, you know? And um, so that's key. When we see restrictive parenting time is when there's been a history of abuse, of um, substance abuse, physical abuse, things like that. And then we use um, neutral places for supervised visitation until we can escalate and try to address it. Sometimes reunification therapy, I mean, whatever the issue may be. But the, the underlying theory when it comes to the children is always what's in the best interest of the children. Best interest of the child, the big standard. Not what the mom wants, not what the dad wants. So oftentimes we have to have a guardian ad litem or a child rep because I could say I'm looking out for the best interest of the kids Opposing counsel can say that, but at the end of the day, we're representing our client, mom or dad. So, you know, that's what it comes down to. 
And for listeners out there, what does a guardian ad litem do um, for child custody cases? So it's a third-party attorney that represents the best interest of the minor children. They look at the case, look at both parents, living arrangements, situation, and make an independent recommendation to the court. And this way, the parents know that this was not mom's attorney, not dad's attorney, not the judge. This was a third party who assessed the entire situation and represented the best interests of the children, whether it's mental, uh, physical, whatever that may look like, but what is in the best interest of these children, because that's first and foremost in any underlying um, case involving children. So there's multiple factors that the guardian ad litem would look at. Absolutely. Those might change over time as well. Absolutely. When a guardian ad litem is appointed, is there a definite amount of time that that uh, guardian is appointed mm -hmm. for, that that relationship lasts for, or is it just based on need over time? Need over time, um, sometimes a combination of the child rep or guardian ad litem along with the mediator, the parties may reach a partial agreement um, and then the guardian ad litem makes a recommendation on the remaining issues. So once we get to the point where there's a final agreement either by mutual consent or by the court saying, okay, I have taken this recommendation of the child um, rep or the guardian ad litem, so this is how we're going to do it. Once you reach that point, then there's no need anymore for the child guardian. That doesn't mean that if there's issues that come up later, that the guardian ad litem or a child rep cannot be brought back into the case. So you have, sometimes when you get a guardian ad litem involved in a case, they're appointed and then they might not be involved for a while but if they were the original ones appointed usually they would be the ones back in the case sometimes they are sometimes they're not it depends on their availability um, maybe one of the parties like I didn't you know like how they viewed it maybe they feel they're biased but usually you know they could seek to have that guardian ad litem appointed again and guardian ad litems are appointed at the request of one or both of the parents involved or the judge or the judge the judge might say hey we're at a stalemate right. here we're kind of right we don't know you know what we should do but we do want to make sure the best interests of the child are protected and therefore Correct. we're going to uh, appoint a guardian and them. one thing that threw me a curveball on the bar exam was child custody or parenting time Allocation of Alloc parental responsibilities. Allocation of parental <laughs> responsibilities when people are moving across state lines. So if yes. mom or dad has a child um, and, you know what, hey, I'm sick of the taxes in Illinois, I'm out of here, I'm moving, to, I'm moving to Indiana now, how does that work out and what, what are the factors that people need to consider um, in making the decisions or in, in advocating? So if there's a case open with the court, you bring it before the court, right? And let them want to move. The key thing is the distance. The distance from the other parent. Because you could move in Illinois and be farther from the parent than if you moved to Indiana. The key thing is not to disrupt the parenting time of the children and the parent's access to the children. So it's not just about across state lines. And if there's already a case, you know, you run it before the court, file your motion, and there's an agreement that jurisdiction remains, say, in Illinois. In Illinois. Right. If that is not stated, then 
after the child has been in another state for whatever number of months based on their jurisdictional requirement, then it can be any venue. It could be right. in Illinois or it could be in Indiana right. or whatever state right. or place that the parent is right. uh, moved to. But you can't just get up and move. And um, again, it has to do more with the distance and the access than it does state lines. Because both parents still need to be able to have parenting time with their child. Correct. And they, one of the factors that would be considered in what is the best interest of the child is the amount of time they spend with each Correct. parent. Especially if the parent was involved. So I had one case where the mom was already closing on a house in Florida, her new husband had a higher paying position, but the dad up until then was getting the kids three to four overnights every week, and there were three kids. She didn't file a motion before the court, she was just moving, so dad files his motion, and the court found that this dad was very involved in his children's lives, and you know, it's great that your new husband has a job opportunity, but he needs to find that over here because that new job opportunity as it pertains to these children does not outweigh the benefit of them having both of their parents involved to that, the extent that they have known in their life. And she wasn't able to move. That's interesting. How much time, like let's say one parent's in Illinois or Indiana or any other state, how is the time usually allocated? Is it almost 50-50 for parenting time or? No, so the answer always, as you know, in law is it depends, Yeah. right? Um, schedules of the parents, schedules of the children, distance, transportation. There's times when 50-50 works out. It, sometimes you have a high school kid, it's okay to do alternating weeks. But when you have little kids and the parent, one has first shift, the other one works second shift or third shift, it's a lot more difficult to accommodate that. So although in theory it would be great, you know, it doesn't always work that way. And one misconception my poor dads have sometimes, and some of them are fighting for 50-50 because they want to be with their kids 50-50 time. But some of them also think, well, if I have them half of the time, then I have to pay, I get to pay less child support things here just because you have them 50 50 doesn't mean your child support obligation changes because again you have to run the numbers based on the income of both parties so you might have 50 50 and still have to contribute child support to the other parent second if you have the kids 50 percent of the time you might not pay the other parent child support but you're still paying expenses to support these children <laughs> food <laughs> more water you know so I have to explain that to them sometimes because they're like, oh, I don't want to pay child support. I'm like, you do understand you will still be paying it, just not to the other parent, right? So then they sometimes reevaluate their desire to fight for a full 50-50 because it creates more stress on their schedules, on the children, and their expenses are still the same. So maybe ideally for some parents it would be 50-50. Yeah. Others it might be you know 60 40 yeah. or 70 30 or some combination of time depending on where they live Correct. how about for people and real quick before we get too far do you want to refill at all or no 
but that should never ask. Pass me that glass if you want. Or if you if you want to, it's right there. <laughs> help yourself. Help yourself. How do you like that, uh, that Riesling? I like this one. So the first time I bought that, I bought it because my daughter's middle name is Michelle. So I'm like, it has to be good. And it, it actually was. So it was nice. Yeah. Arbitrary choice. <laughs> well, I... I don't know these things, but I trust people who are experts in their industry. <laughs> so when I was at the store the other day, the guy who owns it, I said to him, I said, what are the best Rieslings you have? And he says, he says, oh, this is a good one. This is a good one. You know, I figure I'd come up with a couple of choices and let you pick the one you like. <laughs> I don't know what you like, you know. Um, and I expected them to be more expensive, but they weren't that pricey. I was like... Give me the finest. I, I have Veronica Campos <laughs> coming on this podcast this weekend. I want her to have nothing but the finest recently. Uh, but they, they weren't that pricey. No, well, it's funny because, you know, the, the Sutter home, like, they've won all these awards, and they're like 350 like, if you get them two for seven. But they've won all these awards. They're like great wines. They're served as the house wine at a lot of fine restaurants. But because they're at that price point, they're like, oh, you know, it's Sutter home. <laughs> so... I mean, you get some really good wines that are, are from local vineyards that are not, I say local, the United States, not necessarily local <laughs> to Illinois, but, you know, so. Did you ever go to any wineries or uh, <sighs> tour or anything like that? I don't know. It's been a while. Michigan is the only Michigan. place, yeah. Nice and close by. Pure Michigan. Yes. As they say in the commercials. Yeah, but the sign when, you, when you're crossing the line, it says, in pure Michigan, so... It's all in how you read it, right? In pure Michigan, right? So you're about to get some wine. <laughs> Caveat emptor. <laughs> well, what do you mean? Do you mean that some parts of Michigan aren't pure or that... Uh... Well, you know, when you go on these wine tours, you're not driving. You know, they take you in the bus. You shouldn't be. You know, right. Yeah, so, you know, it's like, it's pure Michigan, but it's pure fun time, you know, so... I like Michigan. Um, anything else people should know about divorce at all? And and then there's one question I have as a follow-up to that, but I'll let you answer that one first. Like, we talked about the types of property you have, right? Um, we're in a community mm -hmm. property mm -hmm. state, so you either have marital property or separate property. In terms of child custody, uh, what, what they used to call child custody, um, parenting time and the different uh, quadrants that they have mm -hmm. or facets of um, custody we've talked about that what else do people need to know outside of just property or um, you know child child uh, rearing responsibilities um, one thing I'm going to address is dissipation of marital assets since we're talking about one more time it's called dissipation of dissipation marital, of marital assets so <clears throat> Sometimes you have one partner makes more money, they get a promotion, now they have their degree, they're not happy with their spouse anymore, and they think, let me start saving up to make a break for it. This is going to be my money that I'm hiding on the side, right? Take out money from the 401k, I have a new girlfriend, I'm going to buy her that new engagement ring, we're going to go on this vacation. I'm sure she would love that, by the way. Yeah, tell my, my wife that it's a business trip, you know. I'm, I'm getting my CLEs, you know, I won't be available, I'm going to be in conferences. So all that money that you take from the marital estate, 
and you spend it on a third party for non-marital purposes, the spouse can say, you owe it to the marital estate. So just because you think you're being slick, and this applies even to wives. Sometimes they say, you know, I'm going to start saving up so that I can divorce. And I mean, in theory, the husband can also say, well, that money that you stash aside is of the marriage. And the wife might end up with it anyway, or the spouse anyway, because of the way the division of property works. But the money has to be put back in the pot. You can't... Even if you used it for a third party, especially somebody still has a share of that. Party. So you're going to have to make up for it somehow. Right, right because it's marital asset. So sometimes people think that they're being smart, but the smartest thing they can do is consult an attorney before they make any moves that number one puts them in bad light in front of the court, right? Especially if they're in the position- Appearances or everything. Of the advantage, right? If they're the ones with the solid income, they're the ones with the education, the spouse doesn't have anything, now it's like insult to injury, right? Like this person supported you while you got big and successful, and now you're spending marital assets that she stood there and helped you earn on a third party or, you know, so dissipation of marital assets. So if you're already unhappy, don't play the game. Consult an attorney. Even if you end up reconciling or not getting a divorce, there's nothing that beats getting informed advice. You know, what do they say? Ignorance is no excuse for the law. Right. Yeah. You can't break the law and just That's say, right. well, I didn't know what the law was. That's yeah, right. you, Unfortunately, we have rules that are going to be enforced regardless right. of whether you know them or not. Right. And, and that's key because also what it also does is it adds animosity towards these cases. And I don't like to over-litigate my cases. I don't like the files to get big and get stagnant in my office. So I tell clients, a victory in court isn't a victory for your family. Because if there's kids, you still have to see the other party at events. At, so you try and do things so that you will reinvent the relationship. We're not going to be married anymore, but we continue to be parents. What was, was, but now it's a new chapter. So if you do things the right way, you don't do things in the shady way. It hurts, right? Because people are scared to file for divorce. They're afraid to leave the familiar, afraid to leave their financial stability you know afraid of the adversarial fight that exactly. might take place as part of a divorce exactly but sometimes if you take the bull by the horns it doesn't have to be that way because at one point these people cared about each other enough to have children to build a life together and if you take it from that that approach instead of trying to hide money and trying to be vindictive you know and I hate to say this because you you want people to work on their marriages and not give up on them really quickly and it's not because I'm a divorce attorney but I honestly think the reason some of these divorces get so nasty is because people overstay them you know you stay thinking something's gonna change or for whatever reason and so, the patience runs thinner and thinner as right. time goes on I'm so sick of right. this person so by the time we get to court I have people saying He's supposed to give me 50% of the cost of the baseball socks. Here, I'll reduce it from your bill. Let's not litigate it, right? Let's not give you the headache. No, it's principle. Okay, I like making money, but I just want you to know what it's going to look like financially and how it's going to extend this case. And at that point, they don't care. They're just hell-bent on sticking it to the other party. Because in family law, you're not litigating. 90% of the time, you're not litigating what's on paper. You're litigating hurt feelings. That's what it comes down to. I believe you 100%. And you know? I, I've seen various different trials, various different types of proceedings. 
as I observed in law school and different things, and divorce was the most contentious one. Yeah, so I, I, I tell them, you know, you always have to be mindful that at the end of the day, a victory in court is not a victory for your family. Like, you're the stress, the anxiety, the anger that continues to build up as you drag it out, what you put your kids through. You know, parents get stuck in the, why does he get an extra half hour? Why does she ha get an extra 15 minutes? Last time she dropped off 15 minutes late. How come I can't, well, that, you know, you have to pick your battles because the only people that are affected here are the children. And what are 15 minutes or half an hour? They're not fighting about 15 minutes or half an hour. They're fighting because they're angry and they're hurt, you know, and that's what's unfortunate. So although I don't advocate everybody run to get a divorce, I think as a society, we're always told, you know, like stay with somebody and fight for it. Like, don't be quick to walk away. We live in a society where everybody wants to give up. But sometimes, you know, it's not going to work. It's beyond the point of repair. Um, I've been divorced twice and I make no apologies. I get along well with my daughter's um, dad, my ex-husband. But you get to a point where you're like, listen, this is just not gonna go well. And the longer we stay here, the angrier we're gonna become, the more hurt we're gonna become. And I care about you enough that I want you to seek your happiness and it's not here with me. So people hold on for cultural reasons, religious reasons, and then you're in court and now you destroy your children, you destroy each other, you eat up the marital estate, paying for the attorneys, and then the attorneys still get looked on like they were crap attorneys because they billed you to do the exact thing you wanted them to do, fight for every single thing, and nobody wins. And then the attorney maybe doesn't even get paid their bill because, you know, there was nothing left and unless you want to chase the client for the fees. But so it, what you're saying kind of is that attorneys do get a bad name, but it may be that they're just doing what the client asked them so even though you're in court you're making these motions you're doing Correct. this doing that and then people see the bill at the end oh yeah my attorney really right. took me for a ride it's like well i did everything you asked me to do right. and i have to make a living and my time <laughs> is valuable i have many demands on my time and this is just one of them so i had to bill you i didn't right. mean to be the bad guy and i tell my clients i said okay i'll file that motion but minimum it's going to cost you three thousand dollars and extend your case about six months I'll gladly take your money. That's how I earn a living. I like nice things, but I want you to know what it looks like because then they can't say, and they still say anyway, that, you know, this attorney is not accomplishing. Well, you know, you have me chasing petty stuff, so we're not focusing on the key issues of your case. And, you know, once you get a client that can see that, you have to manage the clients because their feelings, you, it, it, the emphasis in family law really is on the counselor at law. <laughs> because again you're not fighting the legal issues most of the time a lot of things are statutory you know they're clear calculations and then the judge can deviate upward or downward the key thing you're fighting is hurt feelings resentment you know and no rule of law can address that those are personal journeys for these people so we've already kind of hit on these things but i'm going to ask a question then to, to, you, you mentioned a few you can repeat them if you'd like what are the factors that lead to divorces taking so long that's one thing I hear and I even see I have a few friends right now my one of my close friends I just reached out to him I hadn't heard from the guy in a while and I, I hadn't reached out to him in a while uh, he was married I would see him you know once or twice a year we used to work together and I was just hey man how are you you know and he told me I just finalized my divorce Wednesday 
um, just just literally last week. And then I have another friend of mine who's in an ongoing divorce right now. And of course, obviously, we just had COVID, so that's one thing that could delay things. But what are the the main factors that de- uh, delay a divorce from from <laughs> being finalized? Um, that's interesting that you asked that because I really think as professionals and as attorneys, we have a responsibility to our clients, not just to get them the outcome they say they want, because their outcome is based on, like I said, the hurt feelings, the animosity. Those are two factors that could delay them of divorce Huge. from being finalized. But if you are doing everything the client wants and filing frivolous motions, you know, whether you think they're frivolous or not, there are some things that there's no point in fighting them. That drags on the case. Also, a lot of attorneys end up being on the defensive all the time. The other side is filing motions, filing motions, and the attorney feels the need to have to respond to them in writing, you know, go through pretrial, and some motions really don't warrant a response. You can go in front of the judge and say, listen, Your Honor, counsel should have called me and I would have talked to my client and this would have been resolved. But you know, if you're filing motions and drafting motions, you get to bill it, bill it, bill it. So some some divorces last a while because attorneys are just billing time for making motions. I mean, I hate to say that because, you know, some of these attorneys are our colleagues, you know, all of them are our colleagues. But if you're an attorney under the pressure of billable hours, you know, I'm more concerned about my billable hours than I mean, and if the client said file a motion, but we have to counsel our clients in the way that they can reach the legal of their legal objective with the least amount of damage for their families, because that's quintessential in family law. These are families that have to deal with each other that are going to have grandchildren, weddings, graduations. So it can't just be the bottom line and, and making the bucks for us as attorneys. So I'd rather resolve a case where the client goes, huh, I didn't get everything I want, but I'm happy with the outcome. I didn't have to mortgage my house and then refer me three other clients, then suck it all out of one client. So I think attorneys have a big part of that. So, and some clients, you can't move them off of their position. They want you to litigate every single point, but really it comes down to the parties because some of the, the things that cause these delays aren't even big ones. The ones that are big is when you have to have the child rep and there's a question about whether the parents are fit or if the dad hasn't been around or mom hasn't been around, you might need some um, reunification therapy and you can't increase parenting time until there's been some counseling sessions. And so that, you know, is a natural progression and it, it takes time. But other than that, I honestly think is, you know, if you saw some of the motions that I filed before, you're like, are, we, are you serious? I mean... They, they're pointless in your practice you know in your experience on average what, what is the average divorce take just on average ball somewhere even it could be a range um i try to get mine wrapped up before two years uh if there's substantial assets and not been adequate record keeping and you know, issues regarding the well-being of the children or questionable fitness of one of the parents, then it could go anywhere beyond that. Uncontested divorces, we could be done in two months. That's very quick. Yeah. Two yeah. months. Yeah, we almost function like a scribe. The, <laughs> the clients tell us what they want. We put it to paper. They sign, but they, you know, pretty much come to us just saying, listen, just divorce us, and we're in agreement. 
you know. Is it affordable when it's uncontested? Yeah. Because people always worry about attorney fees. Oh my God, they're gonna charge me a million dollars. Like a lot of the attorneys I know are getting a retainer of $2,500 up front. Mm-hmm. And it's like, if you're getting involved in these important life decisions like marriage and you don't have $2,500 right. to sort that out at the end of the day to, ter- to end that relationship, seems like you, you probably shouldn't have got married in the first place but you know whatever it is right. what it is i'm not judged no disrespect to anybody out there but um but yeah so uncontested you know we charge fifteen hundred dollars plus the court fees right so already you're looking at like twenty one hundred dollars uncontested twenty one hundred yeah right yeah. and because you have to have the marital settlement agreement the support order the allocation judgment you know there's a lot of you know it's not like one document but it, what I tell the clients is if we do it that way, if it doesn't reach an agreement, then we just turn that into our hourly. But we try and accomplish their uncontested without having it change. But, you know, that's up to the clients. But you do, I mean, as good practice as an attorney, you do start off a retainer up front to make sure that you right. are compensated for the very hard work that you do as an attorney so my retainer is usually fifteen hundred dollars on divorce cases and based on the situation of the parties if i see you know my client's not the one making the money then i won't take the fee i'll file the petition for a fee waiver so they don't have to pay the court costs and then i'll file a petition to get the attorney's fees from the other side and i've worked with clients i mean you usually get a a good feel for the clients that even if they're paying you a hundred dollars a month they're going to do right by you you know and you know the ones that don't well you know you take a chance um but but i believe that you know being self-employed gives us the flexibility of being able to work with our clients and serve our community in a way that if we worked for you know big law we might not be able to be that accessible to our clients if they didn't have the cash on hand we are the balance as sole practitioners um, between being able to afford a bigger firm and also you have the bigger firms, maybe they want to do a lot of motions mm-hmm. and the smaller ones are just like, I don't have all my life to argue about this. Like, let's make sure we get the important things taken right. care of and just end this divorce case. Right, right. And as we were talking about talking about earlier, you know, we're a new breed of attorney. We're not the attorneys that have the, you know, office space downtown with the executive, you know, uh, cherry furniture. Marble, palace, Correct. everywhere. Yeah. Correct. We're not just about the look. We're about providing the service, right? Providing the service, making the client feel like we're accessible to them, like we got their back and not like, you know, keeping them out of the loop. It's all about their bills and speaking legal ease to them. It's showing them, listen, you know, yeah, I'm an attorney, but I'm here for you. I'm working for you. Like, and it's a whole different relationship, you know. And, and I've worked with attorneys from the time I was 17. And I thought I wanted to be one of those downtown attorneys. And I wouldn't trade it for the world now. I mean, I can work with my clients. I can speak my mind and not get fired three times a day, you know, for the things I say to the um, other parties. Because your client can be the priority. And I think that's everything, you know. So. I like you thought that it's you know at one time i wanted to be one of those downtown attorneys too and you know you don't know where the road takes you until after law school and then you realize you're probably in a better place right we're gonna put out a pin on it right there and then we'll come back uh, for a little bit and just finish it up all right i'm gonna put a pause on that
back in the blue podcast zone here. Uh, a little break. One question that I get a lot from people is, hey, you know, I'm in the middle of a divorce now and my uh, my spouse wants to go on a vacation for a couple weeks in another state. Is that something that you handle by agreement with the other attorney or do you do have to have the judge uh, review and approve that? Obviously, anything by agreement is preferred, right? Um, sometimes the parties can't agree, but we run it through the attorneys and we can negotiate an agreement. Otherwise, a motion has to be filed and we have to have the judge rule on it unless there's a guardian ad litem on the case. So, What kind of motion would that be? Um, or what do you call it when you do that? A motion to allow the the child to travel on vacation. I mean, so there's no yeah, specific there's like no official specific. name. Like this it, is the motion no. for uh, then, absence of state or something. Like no, that. no, it's kind of <laughs> like you know, motion for kid to be able to go with parent to be on vacation out of state. You know, so it's Re- pretty yeah. motion one paragraph long after that. Yeah, all yeah, 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 yeah. So and usually the key thing is having the itinerary for the other parent. You know where their child's going to be, contact information. Those are the key things. So uh, out of state is a little bit easier than out of country because then you have to look at the conditions in other countries if it's a if you want to take the child to like Afghanistan Syria, Syria yes yeah, we want to see the plight of the Syrian people right now know, I want to, to show my child that to Sinaloa Mexico yeah. you know then it's a little bit tricky and then again the best interest of the child right like being decapitated is probably not in the best interest of the child or the mom so no it would be a tough life after that yeah yeah, yeah. I think so you know many impediments that would come with that so yeah yeah that would be a tough <laughs> handicap to overcome in most situations i would think yeah. that's right that's right um so yeah you can do it by agreement and is so if if you agree oh hey you know you're going on vacation we i've talked you know the wife's attorney has talked to the husband's attorney they're going on vacation they're going to another state is a simple email agreement sufficient or do you <laughs> need uh no. Do you need something in writing? No, we come to an agreement, and eight times out of ten, we'll do an agreed order. And you submit that to the submit judge? Submit to the court. And usually they just, okay, if this is what right. you guys if agree, it, If it's an agreed it. order, it's signed off on. Okay. More often than not. So. What do you do for hobbies? What do you do outside of the law? Besides work? I, I rehab injured wildlife. Rehab injured wildlife? I do. All types of wildlife? Pigeons, squirrels, cats, any other type of bird. My friends know that if they see an injured uh, animal, they bring it to me and I have different cages. So sometimes uh, over the last year that we've been on Zoom, I'm on Zoom in court and I'm sitting here feeding, you know, a fledgling who's got no feathers, you know, cat food (laughs) at my desk. So that is literally at your desk literally at my desk because you know they need to eat like every three hours <laughs> bottle feeding cats squirrels rabbits how many pets um do you care for at a given time the answer is it like, depends, it depends yeah, yeah. like all things with law yeah so but at the house i have two cats a bearded dragon and a quaker parrot so you know ace ventura all the way yeah <laughs> So, yeah. So, do you end up keeping those uh, animals as pets when you have re- uh, rehabilitated them? We don't. We release them. Um, 
pigeons like to stay in the area. Um, they will wait for you by the door and want to come in the house. They'll peck at the window. Um, timing's everything. So you try and get them to a point where they're strong and then let them go because they, the babies, they will imprint on you and not want to leave. And then I end up with pet rabbit, pet sterling, pet pigeon, you know. How many pets so do you have? I just have the four, the two cats, the parrot, and the lizard. So those are fully rehabilitated and they're yeah, those, just not those, living? The only one that was a rescue out of that one was uh, the little black cat. Her mom, Stray, had kittens, and she was the only one that survived. So she was between closings. I'd have to make a stop at the house to bottle feed her and, you know, so, yeah. How big is a lizard, the bearded dragon? Um, from head to toe, probably about 22 inches. Okay, not too big. Do, no. do they grow bigger than that? Or? No, no, no. So that's uh, the last pet my daughter got that she promised she was going to take care of. She was going to clean the cage. She's here right now. That's why we're she looking over. She is. <laughs> so, um, and my mom, I was in uh, New Orleans, and my daughter said she wanted the lizard. And my mom, trying to spoil her granddaughter, went and got it for her. But this lizard was about three inches long when she bought it. It is no longer three inches long. So, and because I have two cats and a bird, you know, you kind of, they all have parenting time. You take them out of their respective room or cages and give them parenting time, and then you switch off. So, you know, a lot of, you know, moving around to make sure that the best interests of the pets are are being maintained. VIP best interests of the yeah. pets. Yeah. <laughs> That's right. Um, anything else outside of that? Do you golf? Do you bike ride? What do you do? I don't. I, I mean, work out, and that's about it. Sometimes with my mom, my daughter. I mean, I'm starting to get back into like finding things that I want to do for me because for the last 15 years, my hobby was taking my daughter to karate, taking my daughter to piano, taking her to ballet. So now, you know, yeah. So as she's gotten older, you know, I'm a little bit more independent. It's time for, you know, Veronica Campos ESQ <laughs> to do something other than be the lawyer and the mom. I uh, just got a new bike. Like I saw, I saw. Yeah, within the past few weeks, and the first night I took it out, I went. Uh, like about 12 miles around the airport because it's one mile right, each right. way and I you know four miles total around mm -hmm. the square midway airport and I did that three times so three times four or twelve um, I'm gonna do that more often I wanted to do it over the weekend but a time was an issue and B it is hot, hot as, as hell. hell out there right now mm -hmm. it's hot as hell out there right now if you ever get a bike let me know because I'm gonna start doing more of these like weekend you know you know, at 9 or 10 o'clock, everybody meet up, go for an hour ride or something. And I have a bike. Do you? It's been in the garage for many, many years. <laughs> Make sure those tires are inflated and it's working properly. I got new tires last summer because I was going to start using the bike more because we were in the pandemic, so I was riding to the office in the bike. But, you know, business as usual now, so I drive everywhere now. <laughs> so. That's true, yeah. It would be nice to bike everywhere, but unfortunately... Yeah. Uh, time restraints won't allow us not to do only it. that you show up at the closing smelling like Sweating. all sorts of you know <laughs> yeah is there a shower here could i shower up before we start give me a minute uh, you know i was raised by an old school irish immigrant 
and my mom. She was uh, first American or first generation American, and uh, they raised me to be on time, be prompt everywhere I'm going. And for many years, I was always on time. But now, I'm like never on time, and it hurts. And I feel tension all the time when I'm driving <laughs> and like yes. texting with my and driving with my knee and everything. I'm like never on time anymore, but uh, I try to be. Um, but it's like it's not funny possible. you say the texting and driving because I don't think we could have done what we're doing 15 years ago. If technology the way it was, I think one of the reasons we can do what we do and still be so efficient and not be tied to a desk is because of technology. But it also anchors us. The clients want immediate response. Everybody wants immediate response. They know Why didn't you respond to me? They know you get the emails, the faxes, everything to your phone. And then you start getting question mark texts. And you're like, you know, and God forbid they call you at 6.30, 7 o'clock and you're having dinner because how dare you not respond. So technology has been a blessing and a curse for us, I think, definitely. For sure. And I asked, I asked an attorney. I worked at a, another firm before I open up my own shop and I asked uh, the attorney there he'd been doing this for years and I said was it easier before technology or easier now that you have it to make it more efficient he says I honestly it was probably easier before because people understood that it took longer right. to get these things done but now it's uh, the age of in instantaneousness yes and then I'll see an email come in regarding a loan being approved or an attorney asking me for something and then I get a text message from the realtor. Did you see the email that, so now I'm responding to the text when I could be responding to the email. Yes. So I'm like, We ah. share the same brain, I think. Because you you know, you wanna respond to your broker, but you're like, I could have responded already to that one. Yes, I saw the email, you know, give me a second. It just came in five minutes ago. Right, yes, I right. saw it. Right, yes. right, choices had to be made. And or I didn't see it yet. No, it just came in five minutes ago. Right, right, and you know, you try and balance because you know they're working hard to get the clients and get the contracts, but <laughs> you're just one person and just because we have the technology doesn't mean that we function as fast as the technology yes. that facilitates our very well put our job you know like we're still human beings driving the technology so that's true yeah you because we have instantaneous communication doesn't mean we have instantaneous responsiveness right. we are not as quick as the technology right. a lot of the time right. you were in the service for a while i was i was in the service for eight years how um what motivated you to get involved in that my thought was that I was going to become an attorney with the military. I was going to be a lifer in the military. And I went into the service when I was 17. But I became disenchanted with all the bureaucratic red tape and seeing how the military doesn't take care of its veterans. So around 2001, when we had 9-11, uh, I was serving under Lieutenant Colonel Pritz, Pritz the 38 Rear Operations. Um, and my contract expired so I was like wait nobody you know gave me the paperwork what do I do now because I intended to uh, be continuous and um, my supervisor said oh go find a recruiter and I'm like seriously go find a recruiter like you guys are supposed to be <laughs> taking care of this and, and at that point in 9-11 I thought it was time to part ways so I did my eight years and got out so you got out um, right around the time of 9-11? Uh, 
um, my contract was up in March and we didn't I wasn't made aware that you know my paperwork wasn't put in so I officially just didn't renew after that so we're talking six months and I'm still <laughs> serving with my unit not realizing that I'm no longer attached to a unit <laughs> so so the dreams of becoming an attorney and serving in the military were kind of intertwined you wanted to be a military attorney and um, help the people that are helping us um, serving each and every day uh, as a living well if I'm honest I like the uniforms and I like being in positions of authority and that was the driving force. But you are honest and beats you know behind wanting to be an attorney for the military and then of course there's that movie a few good men right like who cannot remember you get out of the that's right so um, but yeah once I saw the bureaucratic red tape, I'm like, it doesn't seem like I'm going to be in charge. There's DC, there's, I said, mm. <laughs> so. Yeah, we, we hope that with great knowledge comes great power. We become attorneys. We think right. we're going to change the world. And then there's a difference between theory and practice and what happens in the That's real right. world and all that. Um, I, you know, you want to you help people out and you find out that there's all these obstacles to doing that or whatever have you. And there's a difference between the old military and the new military as well. I, my cousin, uh, shout out to Stephen Dreyer, he just retired a few years ago, Command Sergeant Major out of Fort McCoy, and the military that he entered um, in the 80s is a different military than what we have now. And my law school roommate is in the Army. He's a, he's a captain in the Army. And he told me, he says, you know, the army has basically become a social experiment and uh you know it's it's not the military of old because you think about what what a what is a military designed to do what purpose does it serve it serves as an offense or a defense and your job might be killing your job might be to kill somebody in war to achieve a certain goal or purpose for a national interest there's a a video out there on YouTube. I haven't seen it, but I'm going to look it up. And I, I always, I didn't want to say on this podcast, I haven't seen it yet. But the video compares an advertisement for the U.S. military versus the Russian military. And on this side, it's like, you know, somebody with like, you know, some kind of grand picture of doing social good right. with the U.S. military, and then Russia's is like people with shaved heads doing pull-ups and chin-ups and everything They're like which which military do you want to defend right. you and that's what i think about because in the in you know in this age where we're you know we're in cancel culture the age of outrage a lot of different things that we're we're in we have to remember that at the end of the day human beings are animals right, right. we're part of the animal kingdom and sometimes there's some animalistic stuff that's going to go on and you have to be a savage to to do that right so and never mind the urban warfare that we're facing now we're not fighting the same kind of wars we're fighting in the 70s and the, i mean civilians aren't safe you know you can't say well i'm only admin or i'm intel i'm not infantry like there are different rules of engagement very different rules of engagement and then you know you come back home and you have your trips with ptsd with all these issues as a result of that and you have a government that says thank you for your job and rightfully so in many ways because 
you do a job you sign up for the job it was voluntary we're not talking draft time you get compensated for your job and that's it right like what else do we owe you beyond that but it's not the moral thing to do right these are we rely on our military we rely on our teachers we rely on and and they're not treated as if they are such a essential you know part of our society so you know you want them to go into these environments and they're not the same wars they're not the same wars they have not been the same wars um, and they are not in some sense, although they could end up being the same wars as we had in the past, like a World War II or World War III, which would be very scary right. in modern times due to the technology changes we've had. Um, the landscape for, for, for different warfare and tactics and influence right. has changed. Um, but if it all came down to it, you know, right, obviously we had, you know, terrorist attacks you don't necessarily need to, to wage a full-scale right. state battle to battle for that you could target this specific person or a group of people and find them where they're at and you know bring them to justice for what they've did right. um but the new warfare largely seems to be economically based and technology based um because America as a country for the the main superpower for the last how many ever years? I mean, you can say we were the world's main superpower for, you know, 70 years. Right. Well, yes, but also when the Soviet Union collapsed, we became the technological and economic superpower of the world, and we've remained that way for the last, you know, 30 right. years. Um so since we have set that standard as we are not only the you know military superpower but we are also the economic superpower now the standards have changed because now other countries want to be the economic superpower right. and it's not just it's right now we're not even thinking about a uh, you know armed conflict hand-to-hand -hand combat or armed-to-armed combat right. on ground we have countries or governments like ccp who are like getting involved you know, funding centers at our universities and trying to shape thought and influence in those universities or to shape people's thoughts or ideas about how we view other people mm -hmm. and our politics. And it's just a really crazy time, I we feel. We have that even in the United States with our local politician agendas. You know, you contribute to university with the condition that you put professors in place that support your political views. I mean, so we're seeing that even here on home territory so it's not um, hard to believe that we're having that kind of influence from other countries and other governments what do we do about all this um, I think right now we just be the best real estate attorneys we can be and uh, you know <laughs> that might be the best answer <laughs> possible <laughs> because you know they're, they're problems that I think are bigger than us and I I don't have an answer if I had a solution if I had then pro I probably wouldn't be a real estate attorney you know well one of the things I believe about um, about all this that may come as no surprise to you is that free speech is, is one of the most important things we have to to spread awareness of the things that are going on domestically abroad to let people know that we are aware of these issues and that 
we are um, we're all people at the end of the day, right? Absolutely. You know, you maybe you don't like the CCP or the Russian government, but at the end of the day, we're all people. I don't necessarily have beef with the common, you know, Chinese per- person right. who's working a nine to five, or unfortunately, in their case, probably a nine to nine <laughs> job Six or something. To 12. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, right? Yeah. yeah, exactly. So I I don't necessarily want to go to war with them, but I do feel their plight, and it's a shame that there's people out there don't are not able to do what we're doing today. Would have to worry about it. Would have to apologize. Who would disappear for a while for speaking their minds and thoughts on a on a podcast? So for sure, I think that uh, spreading awareness to to the people here as well, because uh, everyday citizens and the businesses that are here in America have a lot of influence over what goes on in other countries. And um, I guess at the end of the day, you know, thank you very very much to all the people who serve, friends, family, yourself. Um, it's been great to having a chat with you, getting to know you better. And uh, you're you're very loyally too. When we were talking about <laughs> different parts of the law, you said under the law. Mm-hmm. It's like um, how they taught us to write our answers on the bar exam and things. Well, you like know, that. we switch our hat. You know, when it's business, we can, you know, we can speak lawyer, right? <laughs> yes, ma'am. We try to keep it real and keep it in plain English for everybody else out there correct, listening. Correct. Is there anything that you want people to know about yourself or or what you do? Um, uh, you're maybe helping animals or anything like that you want people to know before we sign off no nothing specific other than you know we're at your service just as uh, I know you are and you know if uh, anybody has a question of law if it's not our area I'm sure yourself and myself are willing to uh, refer to um, our colleagues somebody that can help our, our clients even if it's not our, our area give some general thoughts or advice or at least refer them to one of our Correct. good colleagues our trusted colleagues out there who do. Correct. Veronica Campos, it's been a pleasure chatting with you today. Uh, Everybody out there, stay blessed and tune in next time. We love you. Bye. Peace.